Hello everyone and welcome to Preparing for Launch, the show where it's our mission to make your space career take flight. We interview professionals from across the space sector to gain an insight into what they do and hopefully get some tips on how to join the industry. Minus X minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Yes, the official UK Sets podcast is finally back. After over two years, we've got a new team up and running and plenty of new guests for you to enjoy. My name is Isaac Calatrio, and I'll be your host for this new season. Off the microphone, we've got Seb Rubinsky and Louise Whiteman, who produce the show, together with Sana Mughal, who helps us with our marketing. We're all current or recent university students and members of UK Sets, short for UK Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. For those who don't know, UK SEDS is the UK's National Student Space Society. We represent students in the space sector and try to get them involved through events, outreach activities and competitions. To find out more about what we do, please visit our website or social media channels linked in the episode description. The idea for this show is to publish an episode every two weeks in which I'll interview a space professional, asking them about their role and their career journey. We want to speak to guests from a wide variety of backgrounds and disciplines, to inspire as many people as possible to consider a career in space and make it a reality. If you're listening to this on our launch date, you're in luck. Today we're releasing three episodes, so there should be plenty for you to get stuck into. However, if that's not enough, all our previous episodes are available on whichever platform you're listening to this on. If you want to give us any feedback, please message us on any UK said social media pages, leave us a rating or a comment. I'll shut up now and let you listen to a new feature for this season, the 60 Second Space Briefing. This is your 60-second space briefing for Saturday, 1st of October 2022. The main story of the week took place about 11 million kilometers from Earth. NASA's double asteroid redirection test, DART, smashed into Didymos, a 160-meter diameter asteroid moonlet, in an attempt to change its orbit. This technology could help us defend Earth from a future asteroid impact. Orbital analysis over the next few weeks will confirm how much the collision affected the object's trajectory. Important announcements regarding space debris came from both sides of the Atlantic. On Tuesday, the UK Space Agency announced that it was awarding ClearSpace and Astroscale contracts totalling £4 million to develop technologies for orbital debris removal. The UK wants to launch its first active debris removal mission in 2026. To learn more about Space Junk and Astroscale, listen to episode number two with Harriet Brettel. On Thursday, the US's Federal Communications Commission, FCC, adopted a rule that will shorten the length of time operators have to deorbit low-Earth orbit satellites from 25 to 5 years. The rule will apply to satellites launched from the US, but also wanting to access the US market. Now, Please enjoy our interview with Blethyn Bowen. Dr. Blethyn Bowen is a researcher and author specializing in space warfare, space power theory, and US military space doctrine, amongst many other topics. He is an associate professor in international relations at the University of Leicester. 
having spent time at King's College London and Aberystwyth University. He holds a PhD in International Relations and Affairs from Aberystwyth University, two masters and a bachelor's degree from the same institution, in security studies, strategic studies, and international politics, respectively. When we think about space warfare, I think we tend to think about Star Wars-like battles between weapon-carrying satellites, shooting each other down, dogfighting in space, uh, attacking orbital assets. How much of this is accurate? How should we be thinking about space warfare? So I think people have to forget most of what they've learned from sci-fi when they think about space warfare in the real world and what is possible if there's a shooting war tomorrow between uh, space powers. Um, The only uh, film really that does anything vaguely realistic or plausible is the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies, where a megalomaniacal media baron uh, engineers a nuclear crisis between China and Britain by spoofing the GPS signals of a British warship and sends it into Chinese territorial waters, um, whereas the British ship thinks it's uh, in international waters. And that is GPS signal spoofing and is part of what the Americans call navigation warfare. So disrupting or harassing the ability of um, enemy units to navigate and also protecting your own ability uh, to use navigation systems of of various kinds. Um, But there's not a lot of accurate depictions of um, space, you know, in popular media anyway, in terms of how orbital space is used. Because when we talk about the military and economically meaningful uses of outer space, we're really looking at Earth orbit and not going beyond 40,000 kilometers. Um, beyond that, there's nothing of any military or economic significance happening. Um, and then it's almost exclusively about satellites. So not people in space, but machines and the radio communications links between those machines. So when thinking about space warfare and the methods of doing it, um, there are two kinds of weapons categories, uh, soft kill and hard kill. Soft kill refers to electronic warfare and jamming. uh, So disabling the ability of those satellites to communicate um, or be controlled from the ground or to send false data or corrupt their data. Um, And, um, you know, cyber warfare, of course, uh, is a big part of that because computers and software control the satellites and manage them and, and, and all that. Um, and electronic warfare is you know, a century old already, and without radio communications, your satellites are useless. So, of course, attacking the radio links is an important part of that. Hard kill refers to physically destructive acts, so uh, kinetic energy systems, so hit-to-kill vehicles, you know, ramming vehicles sent up by missiles, um, explosives or shrapnel-releasing devices or satellites that can... Uh, stalk and then maybe grapple target satellites, send them off into a bad orbit, things like that. Um, high altitude nuclear detonations as well can can be used to destroy satellites. And those are physically destructive and usually non-reversible. So you know, once you've done it, you can't undo it. Unlike radio jamming, once you stop the jamming, um, you know the no- normal service uh, usually resumes. So those are the two main methods. Um, and the weapons can be based on Earth and aim up or shoot up into space or are space-based um, and they target other satellites then. Um, so those are sort of the main categories of the, the methods of space warfare. And it's all about what is on Earth or what is in orbit and not really beyond that. 
You can also try to attack the ground stations of satellites as well in a time of war. So you don't have to attack the satellite, but you can attack the satellite or space system. So you can try and attack the ground infrastructure. So a lot of um, communications jamming uh, is about creating a localized jamming effect on a particular region on Earth and not necessarily jamming everything a particular satellite does. Um, Another thing you can do is to... If there's a satellite communication system and all the local traffic goes through one ground station, then you just launch a few missiles at that place and hope it does the job. Or you send in a special forces team, kill the operators, take it over for a while, cause a lot of damage that way. So there are many methods of attacking space systems and they don't really feature in in popular media very much. Okay, so you've described the technical aspects of space warfare and the means of carrying it out. Can you speak a bit more about the strategic and political side? of of space warfare you mentioned the ship from the james bond movie and i've heard you or read you refer to naval warfare and compare it to space warfare before what is that relationship uh, yeah so in terms of the basic political and strategic or military concepts there's a lot of similarities between the way we look at the seas and outer space and lots of people have made those basic analogies for many decades um like the sea Earth orbit is a place where um, uh, people can't live, but um, occasionally people, but mostly in space, it's machines and communications that travel through space um, for political, economic and military purposes. So the lines of communication in space are used um, for state purposes and often they they um, involve military purposes. Um, so that basic analogy is is, is is where it comes from. And lots of people call out to space, you know, this new ocean. Um, that's a pretty common refrain. And, of course, uh, um, it's very common to anyone who watch, who's watched uh, Star Trek, uh, for example. But um, in, in terms of the real world and practical thinking, in my first book, War in Space, uh, which is based on my PhD thesis, it's about making the analogy of Earth orbit as a coastline, as a coastal environment, because... You know, space is not far away. It begins at around 100 kilometers altitude, um, and it is intimately related to what happens on Earth itself. And um, like uh, a coastal environment, it's defined by its proximity to somewhere else. In uh, you know, in the case of a coastal a coastal environment to the land, um, in case of Earth orbit, it's very close to the surface of Earth, and. You can have weapons fire from the ground, from Earth or the air or the sea that shoot up into low Earth orbit or beyond, depending on the kind of system that you use. Um, so you can't isolate outer space, not like you can isolate the open oceans, which have perhaps thousands of kilometers away from the nearest landmass and the nearest coastal defenses. Um, Earth orbit just isn't like that. It's very crowded. It's uh, very busy and it's a shared environment as well, like many coastal zones too. Um, now, there are differences, of course. All analogies break down. It's imperfect. Um, so coastal waters are territorial um, on the sea, um, whereas in space, it's not territorial. It's, 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 you know, it's, a, it's a shared environment. Some people call it a common, um, although that is not universally uh, agreed, but everyone has access to outer space, to Earth orbit, uh, but it is a shared environment where lots of traffic flies. Um and it's and as a coastal environment, it is also open to smaller powers as well. Um, you know the big navies, big fleets, these ocean-going 
warships. That is something that only really the richest countries can do. But in space and in the coastal environments, they're open to lots of smaller actors, smaller powers that can build lots of specialised craft um, rather than having to do this big blue water thinking and big blue water naval thinking. So, yeah, so so and, 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 and that's really sort of the, the big picture and that pushes against the idea of space as the ultimate high ground that many military forces are now talking about where you know there's more to space than just you know being a vantage point it's 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 a whole environment that is used and shared for many different purposes yeah so what strikes me as interesting about your area of research is that space and the military have always been quite closely linked if anyone follows launch schedules closely they'll see that some rockets or launch vehicles go up to space with classified payloads, which we don't know much about, because they're of a military origin. I'm sure a lot of people have heard the term spy satellite. Why is there now such a buzz around the militarization of space? The US created its Space Force, which I imagine brought quite a lot of attention to the subject, but other countries are also developing their own space forces or writing policy around space warfare. Why is this? Um, so the space age has always been militarized. The um the the fact that we have a space age at all has come from, um, the nuclear and missile revolutions uh, of the superpowers in the Cold War, um, but also with the entry of France, Britain, China, India, and Japan as well in the Cold War, where their own space uh, capabilities were. Um, either first for military purposes or as part of their rationales for development were giving those countries critical toeholds in nuclear and missile technologies if they wanted to um, develop them later as in nuclear weapon technologies. And, you know, in the case of India, that very much turned out to be the case uh, where it had, you know, quite a strong civilian space program, but it was always never more than arm's length from India's nuclear and missile programs uh, as well. So um, so it's it's not just that military and space are linked, it's that the space is the military in so many ways. Um, the commercial or economic, infrastructural and scientific applications of space you know, came afterwards on the back of the massive amounts of money that the military industrial complexes of several countries put into these technologies to enhance their military power and intelligence gathering capabilities. Um, so uh, so that's always been happening. And the, the way some people talk about, well, space militarization is a big problem now. Is that, well, no, no, no. Space militarization has been happening since day one of of the actual space age. Um, it's which specific things about the military uses of space don't you like or do you want to stop or do you want to you know, take part in? So um we have to understand that you know so much of what goes on in space is about the military um and in terms of the private sector today a lot of it is still driven by government spending um there's a lot of talk about the commercialization of space but it's really still chasing government contracts and there's always been that public private nexus uh, you know in uh, in in western countries uh, in space and the not non-communist countries um so why space force now and all that well um now it's you know it's not just the united states that is massively dependent on space for military and economic power um but in many ways it's you know there have been highs and lows of interest in space and 
military competition in space before. There was a lot of it in the 1950s, the 1960s, and in the 1980s. So in many ways, the 2010s, early 2020s, I'm seeing a lot of the same stuff being said that I've seen in older documents and older books and things that were written about the 1950s, 60s and the 80s. Um, it's just, uh, you know, the US is still there, but of course now it's more about China rather than the Soviet Union um, as um, the threat of the day for American commentators. Um, I mean, the the Space Force is interesting, um, but not for the reasons many people want to think. Um, it's not like we're, you know, it's a harbinger of the space war that's certain to come. Um, it's it's a it's a more it's more interesting in a more boring way if that makes sense. Um, the space force really is just a bureaucratic reorganization of what the U.S. Air Force has been doing in space for decades already. So what it really amounts to is new badges and new uniforms, changing the logos and headquarters, um, and developing new pathways of promotion and career development specific to space within the Department of the Air Force. Um, so there have been debates about whether to create a U.S. space core or force that's more independent of the Air Force for almost as long as the U.S. Air Force has existed. And what happened with Trump in 2019 was he saw the legislation uh, being pushed forward by both uh, parties in Congress. It's a, it was a bipartisan bill to create what was then a space core, and somebody got it in front of Trump, and he he loved it. He loved the idea of it because, well, one, it's militaristic, and of course, um, you know, when you're of that political persuasion, you love you know militaristic things. So it ticked many boxes for Trump. It sounded great, and it wasn't something that wasn't was going to cost loads of money in the grand scheme of the U.S. defense budget, uh, but make him look tough and make it look like he's addressing the threats of China and Russia, etc. Um, and but really what it's done is is change the bureaucracy of military space in the Pentagon. That's really what it's done. It may change the military culture away from the air dominance of space in the US because it's been dominated by the Air Force until now, but that's for the decades to come because you know these things take a long time to change and to, and to go down divergent paths of cultural development. Um, and this is where I go into sociology and and, and start um, <laughs> triggering a wave of narcolepsy amongst your listeners, I'm sure. Um, but uh, a lot of allies now for the United States, you know, they're developing their, their own more distinct military space bureaucracies. So in the UK, we now have UK Space Command. There's also a director of space at the Ministry of Defence. And the, the French have um, renamed the Air Force to the Air and Space Force. Um, the Australians are doing more as, as well there and South Korea also has like an air and space sort of ministry and things now and a lot of that is about having more obvious points of contact with the US Space Force then so the US military always needs its opposite numbers at their allied militaries and this makes it easier for integration with the United States because we're all dependent on so much of the US military for space military space systems and intelligence but it's worth pointing out as well that Russia and China um, in the mid-2010s also set up their own more distinct space units. So you have the space troops in the Chinese um, People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Force. And uh, I believe the Russians 
um, are still going by the moniker of the aerospace forces as well, and there are particular space units um, in the Russian aerospace forces. So, so it's not like space force came out of nowhere either. Great, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Because I think that's sort of what's maybe maybe made every, everyone think that this is a big deal now. Uh, space warfare, the military in space. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's important to clarify as well that. You know, it's not like the Americans are, are launching a brand new like space weapons crash program. That's because some people think that's what's happening because they've built a space force. Well, no, no, no. Um, you know, it's not changed American strategy or policy in any substantial way. It's really about the bureaucratic shifts in how the US military gets space hardware, military space hardware, and that's mostly satellites. Um and how it manages the culture and promotion system within the space parts of the Pentagon. There's no like, you know, they're not building a Death Star or anything like that. There's no, you know, th- you know, there may be changes in acquisitions in many years to come, but that's not really because of Space Force. Very good. So we'll move away from your research and day job for a minute. I think you alluded to this at the beginning of the interview, but your background isn't really a traditional space background, especially compared to many academics at Leicester, which is obviously a very space science focused university. I think you studied a BSc in international politics at the University of Aberystwyth. How did you first become interested in space and how did your career move in that direction? Well, worse than that, it wasn't even a BSc. (laughs) It's not a Bachelor of Science. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, for some reason, it went for the Bachelor of Social Science, Social and Economic Science, but these days it's a BA, you know, effectively it's a BA anyway. It's a Bachelor of Arts, really. Anyway, that's uh, academic pedantry for you. Um, but uh, yeah, so so my background, so I studied, uh, I first studied um, international politics at the Department of International Politics at Aberystwyth University in West Wales. Um, and then I did two master's degrees, one in strategic studies or war studies, and the other one in security studies. So like a broader security agenda than just military things. Um, and then I did my PhD uh, again in, in international relations, but that focused on space power theory, uh, which uh, we, we briefly spoke about. Um, so, yeah, I, I've never done any formal scientific education other than uh, GCSE. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, you know, I'm sort of okay doing the basics of, you know, space and astronomy at GCSE level, but yeah, I didn't persist with any sciences for A-levels. I was absolutely useless at chemistry. I was absolutely atrocious. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up with sci-fi and um, uh, watched a lot of, like, space documentaries growing up. So there's, there's always that interest in in, in space there. Um, but when it came to, like, my, my academic education and interest, it was very much in politics and warfare and security and, uh, you know, glo- global, global politics. Um, so... Uh, then I started getting into space politics in my undergraduate degree because I got into war studies. And when you look at modern warfare, you can't avoid talking about the US military and how it how it does, you know, the, the US way of war. And part of that, of course, is high technology. And that is inseparable from US space technology. So looking at the way US military space technologies enable their high precision, high lethality, um, highly networked, coordinated uh, systems uh, in, in, in warfare. Um, and then I realized, oh, so I can look at satellites and rockets and stuff 
um but you know it isn't you know the the hard sciences um you know it's it's politics strategy arts humanities social sciences um trying to make sense of all this you know why do these these things happen what are the consequences of these things what do they mean for the practice of warfare the conduct of politics etc so through the masters when i was left to my own devices in terms of setting my essay subjects or assignments it was always like a space flavor to them. So I carried on doing more space activities or more space related assessments. And that then naturally led to the PhD then, which was on on, on space space warfare. Um, so yeah, so that sums up how I've ended up where I am. Um, after my PhD, I went to teach at Staff College um, with King's College London. So there is a department of King's that teaches the military in Shrivenham in Oxfordshire, the UK Defence Academy. Uh, so I taught there for about a year and a half, and then I moved to Leicester um, to the International Relations Department. Um, and uh, yeah, I knew there was space science stuff going on at Leicester, so I knew that would be an interesting area to um, sort of, or interesting part of the university to do with things with over over time, because there aren't many UK universities that have a lot to do with space science and astronomy, and, and Leicester's one of the big ones. Um, so, so, and that's now is, is becoming quite interesting with the Space Park Leicester here at Leicester. Um, so there's a lot more um, um, sort of uh, interest now building on decades of success with space science and astronomy at Leicester. So, so it's good to try and get, you know, the, the social science and arts and humanities side of the university involved in uh, the space heritage at Leicester now. That's interesting, especially seeing as, as you say, you haven't really come from a space background, but um, slowly made your way into it, which is a lot of what this podcast is about, showing people how to get the due. Have any advice to students who may be interested in space, space politics, space warfare, international relations with a, with a spacey flavour, as you said, um, picking modules or what they should be thinking about? <clears throat> so you have to start from the view that space is for everyone. It's not just for the scientists. Um, and it never was only just for the scientists because um, science doesn't science of any kind doesn't happen in a political and social vacuum. Um, which scientific projects get funded or not um, is is a political and social process. Um, you know how knowledge is created is not a scientifically objective thing. It is ultimately connected to politics, society, and the value, the political values that we have. Um, how scientists are allowed to get on with their research is part of a political and social environment that allows them to do that. For example, so so you can look just more broadly about the relation between politics, science, and society, and space is part of that. And you know, if you're interested in the world in general, well, space is part of our world. Um, we do things in space. Just because most of what happens in space is like is to do with machines, the machines are extensions of us as people, but also of our political and economic systems as well. They're extensions of them. Um, and I think even if you're from a scientific background, but you want to get in the political and policy areas, um, you know, depending on what exactly is being offered, there are some places that do offer postgraduate programs um, for people that are brand new to the humanities, arts and social sciences, especially in politics and international relations. Um, and um, that can be a way in, but usually need to 
um, this is where uh, you know I'm I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the admissions director for our own master's programs, um, and usually if you're making that big change from the sciences into the humanities, arts, social sciences, um, usually we want to see good performance in in the in your undergraduate studies, of course, but something that shows an interest or a willingness to to make that difficult transition into a different kind of studying, um, because. I teach, you know, space politics to undergrads and masters. And whilst the technical knowledge, scientific knowledge will no doubt be useful, that's not what you're being assessed on. You're being assessed on your ability to understand political concepts, um, the wide, the, the breadth and depth of your historical reading, your ability to question arguments and form your own arguments based on available evidence and understanding the kind of knowledge that you are engaging with and creating as well. And these are very different kinds of questions to engineering problems or scientific problems where you are reaching towards what is, you know, like an objective answer to a technical question. Whereas, you know, we like to have arguments in our fields, but we never get real answers. <laughs> and, and, and you know, that is quite frustrating to a lot of people from STEM backgrounds because it's, it's, a, diff, it's a different kind of, uh, of universe. But but it's up to you to make the case in like your personal statements when applying for a drastic change um, in your studies as to, you know, um, why should we give the benefit of the doubt, for example, in the same way that it's very difficult for someone who's got an international relations background to do a master's in space engineering systems. Um, because you do need some level of grounding in the stuff you should have learned at the bachelor's level, for example. Um, but it's not impossible. Um, but it is it is quite a shift. But engaging uh, so beyond formal education, you know, you can um, you know listen to podcasts like this, of course, uh, which talks to lots of people from different backgrounds. Um, read widely. Just um, read um, books on political histories of space. Um, and for anyone listening, if you're interested in politics, IR and history and space, the best sort of introductory book is um, usefully called The International Politics of Space by Michael Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N. Um, it's a little bit dated now. It's from 2007. But um, to get a general idea of what is politics in space, you won't get a better introduction uh, than that. Um, so reading sort of a lot of the existing published works on space security, space politics, the uh, political histories of space um, is a great way to start, to start your own self-education um, on it. And, you know, that can lead to all sorts of places. And, and that would definitely help if you were to pursue any formal education elsewhere, saying, look, I've already been reading these areas and they're particularly interesting for X, Y and Z reasons. Um, and then paying attention to various think tanks and organizations that put on lots of space policy events as well, um, just to try and learn through osmosis what are the talking points for policy in political areas. So, yeah, engaging with wider communities and doing reading is the best way outside of formal education to move from science into the policy political areas. I'm sure this is a matter of opinion, but can you give us any recommendations of think tanks or groups that publish around space policy that we should be reading or thinking about? Yeah, so so there's, there's there's quite a few. So, um, good outlets are the Secure World Foundation. Um, CSIS is another one. Um, I think oh, I always mix up the words, but I think it's like the uh, Center for Strategy and International Security. 
CSIS. They have an aerospace security project. They're quite good. Um, then there is RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, uh, which I'm an associate fellow of. Um, they have a space expert there, and they produce various space-related uh, uh, like um, blogs, opinion pieces. They also have a podcast called War in Space as well, which I've also been on. Um, so they're worth a listen. Um, yeah, War in Space is the name of the podcast. I wonder where they got a title for that from. Uh, it's the name of my first book as well, but yes. <laughs> you know, uh, but um, uh, yeah, so very good. I think it's uh, Juliana Suez, and she's the lady at Rusi. She's, she's good. Um, then there is also... Um, Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue just now. Um, no, it's gone. No, but yeah, off the top of my head, those are sort of the great areas to start googling things. Oh yes, um, the the Westminster Parliament does a series of technical papers for parliamentarians on issues that they know very little about, and uh, they're called post notes. Um, and there's one on space security uh, which I was involved in, and that is like a four or five page summary of lots of space security issues so if you if you google um westminster parliament post notes and then go to that site and find the space security one from like the last year or so um that that is that is a good briefing as well yeah that's some really good advice and there's a lot to pick out from there so thank you for that i can relate to the struggles of an engineer in social sciences to an extent a lot of my flatmates were pp students and I quite like talking to them about what they did and I, I was quite interested in, for example, the foreign policy aspect of it. But whenever they would all get together and have debates, it would put me in a really bad mood because I, I would be like, you're just talking for hours and hours on end and never reach a conclusion, never come to a concise point. And I, I need that. I just can't understand things if not. So yeah, it would just make me very, very frustrated. No, and, and I think, I mean, for me, the, the, the value of that is, yeah, you never reach sort of firm or simple answers but the process of talking them through helps you understand the socio-political forces that are at work and we never know everything or never fully understand everything because that's well that's the human condition really understanding why people do things and how do you stop people from doing bad things you know how do you have a like a you know an ordered society but without the abuse of power um how do you have individual freedoms but also individual security uh, as well um, you know, classic political problems. And yeah, they have their corollaries uh, in space. And um, if it's any consolation, though, you know, I struggle to write essays, you know, in, at university as well. It, you know, it's, it is a skill and you get easy at it over time, um, you know, as, as is true for any, any kind of learning. Um, and, you know, I was not a, you know, straight A student, um, you know, in, in, in first, second year at university. You know, I was not getting first straight away. You know, I was getting, um, you know, uh, things in the in the mid fifties, which in the UK system, of course, is you know is a third. Um, and for those unfamiliar with the UK system, the the top band of marks is usually seventy or above. So we don't do the hundred percent thing in the social sciences, arts, and humanities in the UK. So seventy percent and above is like that's the top bracket. You know, you've done really really well if you get seventy. Um, I was not really scoring consistent high 60s or low 70s until end of my second year and into my third year um so it's a skill and things that you learn and you just pick up a lot over time um 
and and, oh, and also in the ma- in any master's program as well. Ideally, you do that, but over a, a shorter time span as well. And you know, I, I you know I definitely learned a lot in the very condensed time frame of a master's as well. Um, so so yeah, it's um, it is a different mindset, and for and I think for um, you know a lot of people with STEM backgrounds in space who want to perhaps move into management or policy. You know, it may not be something that you might formally study or write a lot on, but you are going to have to engage with that with other people because you, you're going to have to engage with politicians, you're going to have to engage with wider civil society, academic experts who are from the political universe. Um, but then they need that technical understanding from the STEM experts of like, yeah, well, this is how things like actually work in terms of space operations, or uh, this is how you get money from the European Space Agency, this is how it's divvied up in practice, etc. Um, so, it, you know, if you are going to go into those management and policy areas from the STEM background in the space industry, um, you are going to have to deal with that sort of, you know, there are no obvious rights and wrongs in the political world. And if you go into the industry or the the military industrial or aerospace complexes, um, you know, you, you're going to engage with policy and ethical issues there as well. And you're going to have to think about them and engage with them and be happy with what you're doing. I always found it interesting in my job to see the links between government and industry. Often I'll see technologies and I think, oh, that's really cool. I'd really like to investigate that further or maybe more money should be invested in that. But it was like, no, well, this is the way the UK's military doctrine works. This is what the government wants to spend its money on. So this is what needs to be developed. I always found that really interesting. Yes, and and, and space technologies, you know, uh, and technology as well is not just something that happens that people respond to. Technology is something that is created by people for specific reasons, um, and usually groups of people with different intentions over the technologies as well and different interests. Um, and then once it's built, then yeah, people then respond to it in different ways. Um, so the space age is the same. It's not just like a force of nature that happened. It's not like, oh, we can go to space now. It's like, no, 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 there are, there are reasons why certain people and organizations and countries built certain kinds of technologies for their own interests or for different interests, but they overlapped enough to get the money to build something. Um, so, you know, you have that classic alignment of, the military security and political communities and a lot of the scientific communities coming together over rocket development in the 1940s and the 1950s in several countries. Um, so, uh, but they all had different ambitions and different ideals as to, you know, why are we building these technologies? And, you know, I imagine many of your listeners are familiar with, you know, Werner von Braun as the classic case in point where, you know, you watch his, you know Disney programs. Um, it's all about you know uh, the, the you know human exploration. Uh, you know the next frontier and in, in, in the endeavor of America to expand the nuclear family and stop the communists from taking the moon, uh, etc. Um, but he built the V two rocket, or rather, he managed the V two program and was responsible for the Mittelwerk factory, which killed twenty thousand slave laborers full of people the Nazi regime uh, deemed as undesirables and they were worked to death. More people died building the V2 rockets than were killed through their use as weapons. Um, you know, and Werner von Braun was head of that program. And um, there he was 20, 30 years later, 
you know, pontificating romantically about space exploration and the nobility of space flight, etc. Um, and that and and that dynamic is not unique to Werner von Braun. You know, maybe the the genocidal labor practices, um, but in terms of you know that militaristic, the militarized aspect of that technology, um, you know, that is why many people do do space or pursue space technologies. But for others, it is about international cooperation. It is about putting people on other planets but that's not universal and i think a lot of you have to recognize that not everyone actually is that interested in space um or is not that keen on a multi-planetary species um and i think people have to understand that people are in the space sector for different reasons for some people it's just a job um for for others yeah they believe in a human mission uh, to expand across the solar system for others they just want to make things on earth better by very practical space systems you know in in within the scientific communities there's always debate in terms of space science versus space exploration in terms of funding um you know hotly hotly contested budgets you know why not invest more in earth monitoring systems uh, as opposed to putting boots on the moon <laughs> um and you know that's politics um and international space cooperation is political as well um it's not something that happens in spite of politics it is political why do some countries cooperate in which areas and on what terms that is international politics so because i hear people talk about international cooperation as it's as if it's not a political thing no no it is politics can mean the good things that happen as well as the bad things um so um i think it's just more about having people from different communities in space talk to each other more because there tends to be so many fundamental misconceptions and people talk past each other. Um, and I hope that my, the new book, Original Sin, that's coming out uh, in a few weeks, hopefully makes some useful contribution to that, to say, look, we all who are interested in space in some way or working in space need to understand each other a bit better. But um, the scientific dominance of public discourse on space needs a bit of pushback i think from those of us from the political and sort of social science worlds okay good um yeah so is that sort of really i think i've heard you speak before that um yeah you're not so keen on the theory that um we're just gonna all sort of you know in the next 10 to 15 years elon musk is gonna give everyone build loads of rockets <laughs> make sure that everyone's gonna go and live on mars no one's gonna want to live on earth you're not a big fan of that theory well it's not being a fan of it all. i think it's absolute bonkers um i mean you know, in terms of exploration and especially crewed spaceflight, you know, space is the realm of broken promises and shattered dreams. Um, there, like, it's it's amazing to go back over the last thirty years of all of these concepts and designs and deadlines that, as Douglas Adams would say, has whooshed by um, without being achieved, like. You know, originally China was supposed to have its astronauts on the moon like a couple of years ago. You know, we're now saying, oh, sometime in the 2030s, probably. Um, it's unlikely that the Artemis program in the United States is going to have its first people back on the moon by 2024. Um, you know, as we can see, there is no slack in the SLS program. Um, you know, there's there's no production line of SLS rockets, as far as I know. Not like um, you know the um, the plans with Starlink, any not Starlink, a Starship, sorry. Um, you know, and also the Long March rockets that the Chinese use for their crewed space flights to the space station. So, 
um, you know, we 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 have to basically ignore the deadlines that everybody uses for we're going to have people here by this time because for for the simple fact that people just aren't spending the money on it. Um, when Trump put in his the request for the Artemis program, Congress gave half of what NASA said they needed to do it by the timescale that Trump wanted. Um, you know, the money just isn't forthcoming, and it's a lot of money. Um, and and then the getting there is one thing, you know, and that's there are question marks over that. It's difficult enough to succeed in sustaining six people on a space station in Earth orbit, let alone sustaining people on the moon. And then people talk about Mars as if it's a feasible thing. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know, the unreality of it. And I, I went to a Humans to Mars conference in Washington, D.C., you know, about 10 years ago. And all these, you know, very bright people were talking about all these, you know, techniques and ways of getting to Mars and, um, using local materials to build shelters or dig underground and, and all that, and how to do hydroponics and synthesize stuff from what they think the Martian regolith is made of. Um, nobody at any point was talking about um, the funding. Like, how much do all these things cost, do you think? Um, and nobody was talking about the politics of it. Like, so who's going to do this? Is it going to be a US-only mission, or are you going to have contributing partners to a US-led mission? Are you going to have something under the flag of the United Nations? You know, what's the governance mechanism? Because when you send people out to Mars, they're going to be there by themselves. You know, they are going to be isolated in, in every physical sense. Um, they're only be, going to be communicated by a laggy radio connection. So how does the governance system work um, when people are isolated like that and for a long time? Because it's it's months, even with the most outlandish nuclear propulsion plans uh, as well. It's still months of journeying. So there's no discussion of that in these in these um, pro-Mars and even like pro-human exploration communities. And they need to be discussed. And how do you convince the non-space enthusiasts to be on board with it? Because, and even then, it's there are people in the space community, like myself, who have loads of reservations about it. You know, I'm not anti-space, but... I I have loads of problems with a lot of the, the human exploration lobbies and enthusiasts just because of the unreality of their thinking. Come forward with politically, economically feasible programs. Okay, well, maybe, but you have to build that political coalition to get that support behind it in government, in political parties, and wider society. Um, so there is that people are still in quite that technical bubble over it. Um, and then you have interesting people like Robert Zubrin, um, is it Robert? Um, uh, anyway, Zubrin is a surname, um, um, and um, you know he he wrote the book "The Case for Mars," and it doesn't really engage with any of that. And when it does talk about politics, he's got this really weird Martian libertarian homesteading vision of Mars, which is very much like the white person's American West of the nineteenth century, which is, you know when it's it's the libertarian fantasy of what the american west was like uh, in the 19th century uh, you know you know and and it ignores all the colonialism imperialism genocide dispossession corporate thuggery that happened in the 19th century in the american west um you know and the various wars as well and 
that's not how you build a wide political consensus by invoking um, the political narratives of what was a traumatic period of history for so many peoples um, and people who are still marginalised um, in our political systems today. So I know that's a bit long-winded, but that is why the politics of space just matters in everything that we do, especially if you want to build coalitions that include everyone to try and allow you to do what you might want to do. When we think about warfare currently, at least from a Western perspective, two conflicts come to mind. Obviously, the war in Ukraine and the escalating tension between China and Taiwan. Can you speak about both of those briefly? In Ukraine, as general public, we've consumed a lot of Earth observation data with images of troop builds up and the like. In which other ways has space played a role in that war and in the conflict in China? Yeah, yeah. So, um, first, um, what you call Earth observation um, is called you know, imagery and signals intelligence um, in, in the, the military and intelligence worlds that I deal with. So, um, so that, that would be imint and sigint imagery and signals intelligence um and uh, you know earth observation came from the worlds of um imint um from the from the intelligence communities so um but yeah they, they've been important in wars um since since the early days of the cold war um the first ones were sent up in the late 50s and the early 1960s by the two superpowers and other countries followed suit very quickly afterwards what we've seen in ukraine is the scale of commercial imagery intelligence platforms or earth observation as the uh, civilian worlds, worlds tend to call it um is is the availability of that to uh, to a certain resolution for certain clients and customers um so that persistence of the coverage for a wider audience is interesting but in principle not new the same concerns uh, were there with spot satellites the french spot satellites in the 1991 gulf war uh you know against iraq um, and in the 1980s, um, the US intelligence community were already thinking about how do we handle commercial imaging platforms uh, in space um, that might want to sell images of sensitive uh, areas uh, on, on the marketplace. And, you know, the US government has what, what are called shutter controls that make sure that companies within US jurisdictions don't sell images to a certain resolution or of certain areas that are sensitive at a particular moment in time. Uh, so it's interesting when um, uh, you know I, I use Twitter uh, a lot, and um, in the run up to the war in Ukraine, you know we were getting a constant feed of commercial imagery of the Russian troop buildups. We weren't getting any imagery of Ukrainian maneuvers. That's shutter controls in effect. You know, our media were not getting uh, updates on what the Ukrainians were doing in response with their own movements. Um, so, so you know, that's an example now of the role of space systems. But what we're seeing there is uh, the US military has been enjoying that level of imagery for a long time already. It's just now there's more of it on the commercial side um, that is more publicly available. Um, and the US is getting less sensitive about certain kinds of imagery being shared. Um, and, and it helps the Biden administration build opposition to the Russians as well over like November, December last year. Um, yeah, and then over Taiwan and China. Yeah, I focus on this case um, in, in, in my first book, War in Space. And um, 
it's 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 so difficult to, to answer very briefly because there are so many different kinds of satellite systems that are so crucial in um, high-tech warfare where everyone relies on satellite systems to guide their missiles, to coordinate their military forces, uh, for command and control, to detect enemy attacks. Um, but yeah, space is used for so many uh, useful useful applications that if there is a shooting war between China and America tomorrow, you can expect some kinds of attacks on space systems, especially jamming and cyber. We've seen cyber warfare a bit um, uh, in Ukraine against, um, was it Viasat, I think? Um, so you would see lots more of that over, over, over a Taiwan scenario, especially when the United States will be supplying a lot of space-based information support to Taiwan in such a conflict, I would presume. Okay, well, thanks a lot, brother. It's been a great chat. I think we touched on a lot of uh, interesting, relevant topics and some useful advice there for students interested in space politics or space warfare. Um, where can we find your work? Where, where can the audience find your work? And you spoke about um, some of your books. Maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I am on Twitter. Um, B-L-E-D-D-B is my handle. Um, you can find me, you know, boring people on there um, and you can abuse me in public. Um, I also have a personal website um, called the Astropolitics Research Portal. Um, yeah, so um, so if you click there, it's it's my personal website, and I have lots of information about me on there. But I also have um, a couple of reading lists there as well. So uh, both academic and lighter reading that aren't like uh, behind sort of the the journal academic paywalls either. Um, so there's plenty to read there and you can find my books on there as well if, if they take your fancy Brilliant, well thank you very much for your time No, thank you very much, it's been a pleasure We hope you enjoyed this week's episode Please follow the podcast if you want to find out when we release new episodes and leave us a rating or comment or send us a message on any of the UK said social media pages to let us know what you think about the show Join us again next time for more insights from professionals Until then, stay safe Preparing for Launch is UKSED's official podcast. It's hosted by me, Isaac Alatrio, produced by Seb Ravinsky and Louise Whiteman, with support from Sana Mughal.